Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you again for joining us on Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is the co-founder and executive chairman of Did It, a leading digital-first marketing firm, which was started in 1996, and he's transformed Did It from an SEO-SEM boutique agency into a full-service digital-first marketing firm through 11 acquisitions while retaining technology at its core. He's also the CEO of the eMarketing Association, and he founded GivingForward.org, a cause marketing organization for nonprofits. That's GivingForward.org. You got to look at that website because I looked at it and it's very inspiring. He's launched platforms, including We Care, which has raised over $8 million for nonprofits. He's written four books, given over 500 speeches, and published over 700 articles. Presently lives in Scarsdale, New York with his family. Please welcome Kevin Lee. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Very well, Gary. Thanks for having me. Well, Kevin, looks like you're busy. You've got a lot going on with digital and, and nonprofit. And, you know, we're here to talk about leadership. So let's talk about, first of all, how did you get into did it and the digital marketing and, and start and grow this company? Let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah. I got involved in digital marketing first in 94 uh, when I worked for an agency that was very early in digital and uh, essentially uh, did it was a spinoff of that agency. So I co-founded an agency prior to did it. Did it wasn't really an agency in the beginning. It was more of a technology company that provided technology to marketers. And so, you know, in uh, SEO before Google even existed, we were doing SEO for brands, most of which nobody remembers anymore, AltaVista and Lycos and InfoSeek. And uh, so we were doing SEO for those and monitoring. So we just continued to evolve over the years. And, and I've So what, a- what caused you to evolve from being a technology? Because I was in technology since 1990 and, and did things like that. And to take that kind of a major shift from being a, a technology company to being a marketing company is is a big it's pretty it's a big leap. Yeah, I mean we we wrote one of the first web bit alert systems for goto.com which was the first pay-per-click search engine if you remember. Older people will remember that that search engine. Uh they went went public as Overture and and then got sold to Yahoo, but we, we built the first bit alert system for goto and then that became a bid management platform to automate PPC bidding. And that was a pretty good business until a, a company called Marin Software raised over $100 million to go with the objective to go public. And so they priced very aggressively. I believe they priced below cost. They went public at close to a half a billion dollar valuation. And to my knowledge, they've never had a profitable quarter since then. So that's for probably 12 or 13 years now. And so having a competitor in the technology space who doesn't make money sort of forces you to not make money. <laughs> so right, right. We decided and just so to, people know the PPC is a pay for, per click. That's an yeah. advertising term for, and a lot of people that are in marketing know what that is, but some people that are not in marketing might not. So 
that's a way a pay-per-click is the way people pay for online advertising and also how advertising companies like Google today make their money, right? Exactly. So, you know, there are millions of advertisers on Google and they're, they're paying for at least their search advertising on a per-click basis. So they call it pay-per-click. And, you know, managing the complexity of those campaigns, you know, requires software. And so we had been in that software business web-based software. And so we had to layer services on top of our technology in order to bring EBITDA back into the equation. And once we sort of got into that services layer, we sort of figured, okay, we should just jump in with both feet and become more like an agency. And as clients asked us to do more and more things that weren't originally in our wheelhouse, the easiest solution to add, you know, more services into our offering was to acquire marketing services firms that did do those things, right? Because that way you get the talent and you get the customers at the same time. So let me, wait, let, me, let, me, let me see if I understand this. This sounds crazy. Your customers asked you for something. You decided to give it to them. And you did it in a way that says, well, let's just go buy companies up and we can provide those services. Essentially, yes, right? Because what happens if you don't do that is you, it's difficult to sort of, immediately reach critical mass where you could hire the HR people to do that thing, right? Because mm-hmm. you have a catch-22. You can't sell it so you have people who can do it, and you can't, can't do it. You can't sell it first, right, if you can't do it. And, and if you hire the people before making the sale, you got a whole bunch of people sitting around not doing anything, right? Yes, so one, one is kind of the you hire the people, it, it's build it, and they will come. That's that approach. Or... It's the entrepreneurial thing where you sell it and then you go find a way to deliver it. And yeah. it sounds like you were in the in the throes of both of those while you were building the company. It, essentially, yes. And we decided that we weren't really comfortable selling vaporware from a services perspective. So the M&A was really a way to address that, right? Because that way we could feel confident in our ability to deliver right out of the gate. So how did you decide to buy which company when you were... In, Obviously, it's got to be affordable and you've got to have all the financial parts of it. But what are some of the things with the people that you are trying to focus on in order to be able to get the right mix? Because you start buying, you buy, you made 11 acquisitions, you buy the wrong companies. It can be a disaster. We had a couple of disasters in there. Um, you know. Great. Let's talk about those <laughs> without using names. But what did you learn from that? How, how? Well, I'll answer your first question first as far as sort of how we made the decision of what to buy. Each acquisition had its own backstory. And, you know, in some cases we were approached, in some cases we approached someone else. As as far as, you know, one common theme was that it was accretive, right, to what what we do or what we offer, that we were essentially not just buying revenue, but we were also buying people who could then allow us to do, create even more revenue. Another common theme was that some of these service providers provided one small set of things to their clients. And because we were already providing more than that to our existing clients, in other words, our our breadth of services was broader than the companies we were acquiring, the ability to cross-sell into those existing clients ended up being an important part of the, the M&A uh, arithmetic, right? Which is if if you're just buying the revenue and you don't expect the revenue to go up, you're constrained more than if you're buying revenue, but you think you can actually get, let's say, 20 or 30% of the clients to buy something new if they need it, right? If they need right. that incremental service. 
So you're actually looking to add both depth of talent, but breadth of capabilities across your other services and clients that could add to who you were already providing services to. Yeah, exactly. And, and as far as, you know, M&A deals that went less than smoothly, you know, it really boils down to trying to find that perfect balance of due diligence, right? When you're doing due diligence for small, you know, companies, you know, under 20 people, there's a limit to how much due diligence you can do without being obvious, right? Because, you know, you, if you start poking around within the organization or with, you know, trying to talk to clients, et cetera, you know, it's sort of unfair to everybody if you do too much poking around because suppose the deal doesn't happen. Now you've sort of disrupted the the the, the, the potential acquisitions business. So you right. sort of have to find that perfect balance. And in the cases where things went less well, you know, it really pointed back typically to us not having found that perfect balance, right? So we should have potentially gone a little bit deeper, right? Or 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 paid more attention to to some warning signs when we when we did go at the depth that we went right where we should have sort of seen you know in my in it, hindsight is always twenty twenty right so so obviously after the fact it's easy to go back in there and do an audit and say oh you know that was a warning sign but but I would say you know taking the time to sort of analyze the data you do have access to and and, and validate it and verify it is is key. Now, even if you do everything right, I, I've talked to a bunch of folks in M&A, both big company M&A and small company M&A, and, and they say that you know, 50-50 is actually a pretty good ratio, right? So to have done 11 and really only have two major hiccups, you know, that's unusually good. So we can't really kick ourselves too much for, for having you know, done less than, than 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 having a perfect record, right? So per, well, no, actually, record. it's a very very good record. I was I just had another uh, M and A expert on my podcast a couple of months ago, and we had talked about this very thing because I I made the comment to him that most M and As, from what I see from the outside, go go wrong. They go they go south, and you know we typically see these in in the public realm, not in the private realm, because we see these public companies that that merge and and what you have is you have a difference in leadership style and a difference in culture that creates friction. And you either need to incorporate the culture into the culture of one or the other, or one has to dominate. How did you handle that, you know, that transition when you had an acquisition of maybe five to 20 people that came into your company? And and these people have to get along. They don't know each other. It's all of a sudden they're part of a bigger family, bigger team. And did you see some challenges with those those cultural clashes? At a minor level, right? We try okay. to talk through things as much as possible, you know, during the process, uh, so that everybody's comfortable with it. And then once once the, the the transaction closes, making changes more gradually just makes it easier on everybody. Um, okay. Because when you're when you're acquiring a, a going concern, right? Usually you know, they were going concerned, right? So so you don't have to make radical changes initially, right? You can even keep the identity of the old company and just, just add your company name to the end of it, right? So, you know, Halo, a did it company, right? Halo is one of the, our acquisitions. If you go to that website, it's still independent. And it, the logo says Halo, a did it company, right? So you you can keep the, the logos, um, you can keep as much in place as possible and then make the transitions 
and then make the transitions at the speed that feels right to you, you know, as you go, right? And a lot of it has to do with the roles and responsibilities of everybody within the organization and how those roles and responsibilities are transitioning and, you know, talking it through as you go. You don't, having a preset velocity of change, I think that's arbitrary, you know, that we haven't worked it that way. We, we've sort of tried to find the natural, the natural speed of sort of folding things together and merging things together. I mean, obviously some things happen right away. New email addresses, new payroll, new healthcare plans, that kind of stuff. But as far as, uh, as far as operationally, you know, the key is to sort of find that right velocity. Well, you've brought up a couple of really, really important and good points when you talk about leading a change process, especially with people. You know, let's forget about the technology. Let's forget about the integration of marketing and, and services and all that stuff. But it really is about the people and your ability to lead that process. First of all, you use the word to, to make the changes gradually, not to set some kind of arbitrary deadline about, you know, we're going to hit this deadline and when, it, when it's going to happen. But I think one of the key things that you said that I want to highlight is respecting and maintaining the company culture and the brand that you were bringing in and letting it just kind of naturally unfold. You keep their name, you, you know, you keep a certain aspects of what their identity is when they come in and not saying all of a sudden, you've got to change all your business cards. You've got to change this. You've got to change that. You're part of a new family. And it's kind of this, you know, you're not, you're not making it so stark, so immediate that people feel that their life is being turned upside down, right? Yeah, and, and that, that jarring change isn't exclusive to, to the staff, right? There's the clients too, right, who are used to dealing with a particular brand. And the way we have typically seen it is there's no, there's no particular rush on that either, right? Obviously, we may make some changes to, you know, the, the billing information as far as when the invoices go out. But other than that, you know, a, a smooth transition for the clients and the employees is key. Right, mm -hmm. the smoother the transition, the less likely you're going to have hiccups. Right. So, what are some of the things that you did to make sure that that happened? That smooth transition. It was really just a matter of trying to keep as many of the reporting relationships in place as possible, and just sort of, you know, add the senior executive team that did it to the reporting structure. Right, and then sort of, then see see sort of how it goes. And in each case. You know, the, the folks selling their company to us, you know, we had sort of a specific roadmap in general, like a, a living document kind of a roadmap in place with them as far as what they would do the same, what they would do differently. Would they be, you know, heavily focused on biz dev? You know, would they try to transition out of operations and become, you know, go back to rainmaking, which is probably something that they were good at. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to build their company to where it was. Right. So it's 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 really just all about making putting in place a, a logical transition plan, right, for everybody involved. Well, you, you made a comment earlier talking it through. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a cliche, but, you know, we talked it through. But specifically, what I hear you say is, is you talk through the roles. You talk through what the expectations were. You establish boundaries for, for people so that they know and understand what's, what's coming, what the future is, and what's expected of them. And if you don't do that clearly and you just – you know, let expect people to figure it out as they go along. It's going to cause a lot of problems because people are going to make assumptions to their own best benefits that are not going to then bring them into your organization. 
Yeah, and we we it's, we didn't do it perfectly every time, right? So, so, so that's what we're doing now. <laughs> so acquisitions, yeah. you know, acquisition one was obviously we were completely green at it. As it happened, that one went particularly smoothly. But I think we were extra communicative <laughs> in that case because because it was our first one. Then I, I would say somewhere in the middle there we might have gotten a little bit lax. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, yeah, this is easy, right? And then, you know, sort of forgetting that maybe it's not so easy uh, or that, you know, you can't apply exactly the same roadmap, transition roadmap to every acquisition. So, uh, yeah, your point is, is is well taken, right? You know, but but everybody learns their lessons along the way as they go. So hopefully uh, my wisdom will rub off on somebody and they won't have to go do it the hard way the way we did a couple of times. Well, and that's the purpose of this podcast, Kevin. So thank you for bringing that up. And leadership is a responsibility, not a position. So it's not all about you. It's about your team. It's about the team of the other organization that you're acquiring. And like you said, it's the the simplicity of this is what I love. You know, talk it through, establish boundaries. And, I, you know, I just want to make a point. I, I love one of my statarians, Dr. Vito Stellato, taught me this about boundaries. He said, imagine if you're on top of a 40-story roof. And there's no, there's, you know, it's 40 feet from to each corner and it's 35, 40, 50 mile an hour winds. And there's, there's no wall. You're on a flat roof, way up in the air, a lot of wind. How free are you to move around on that roof? And I've had people say, you know, if you can imagine, I'm going to lay down right in the middle of the roof. I'm not moving because I don't want to get blown off. All right. But if I put the boundaries up and put a 10 foot stone wall, all the way around the outside boundary of the of the roof, can can I then move around the roof? And I was like, heck yeah, hell, I'll play tennis. I mean, you know, I'll get out there and play. You know, I can run around. So boundaries create freedom if you do it in the right way, right? And that's what it sounds like you did. You created you created these boundaries as people were brought into the organization to understand the roles, what the expectations were, and let them go do their thing. Hadn't thought of it as boundaries before, but I guess I guess it's a it's a good analogy. Well, there you go. So, so what's going on with your company today? I mean, we've we're, we're here. We are in this pandemic, and you do digital marketing. And I I said to you earlier, oh my gosh, that's great. A lot of people are doing digital marketing. Your sales must be going through the roof. And to a great extent, they are right. I mean, um, especially within the last uh, three months or so, I think you know that some people sort of put growth of their own companies, uh, you know, executives put growth of their own companies on pause because of the economic uncertainty and socio-political uncertainty all layered on top of uh, a pandemic. Right. So there was, there was a lot, an, an unusually high level of uncertainty and investing in the future of your business is, is t- a tough decision to make anyway. But when you have high levels of uncertainty, whether it's the CFO or the CEO or the CMO, you know, sometimes they just want to sort of take the foot off the gas a little bit, but eventually they realize, whoa, if I don't put my foot down on the gas, we're not going to keep moving. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of that, that broke free within the last two or three months. And, and along with that, I think there was sort of a light bulb that went off that where people said, wait a minute, my old marketing plan. Now I'm really sure that it's not the right one. Mm-hmm. Right. The reality is, is that that often within, you know, even the very largest and most sophisticated marketers, the marketing plan for the following year looks like a Xerox copy of last year's plan with a few rows moved around. Like, let's put a little more here and a little less there as far as, you know, TV versus 
programmatic video versus display media versus Google search, et cetera, right? And, and, it, and it tends to evolve slowly. But this was a year of accelerated change, right, for everybody. And I think what it did is it sort of shook free a lot of the folks where they realized, wait a minute, maybe the media plan I was using in 2019 was actually completely wrong too. And now it's just become much more obvious mm. that it was wrong, right? So the, the rate of change, uh, we're, we're doing a lot of, of marketing audits and media audits now, mm. right? Because people are saying, wait a minute, is what I was doing before or what I'm doing now even right? And, and, but they didn't have that question in 2019, right? Even though it may have been wrong for 2019, because it looked almost like the 2018 plan and almost like the 2017 plan, and sort of nobody wanted to rock the boat, right? They're like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll do this again. Obviously, everything's great. We're growing as a company, blah, blah, blah. You know, what the opportunity cost was of not doing it 20% better, right? Opportunity cost is the hardest thing to measure, right? Because it's what you, what you could have gotten but didn't, right? And so often, you know, there's a complacency that, that creeps into these marketing plans on paid media and on earned media where you just sort of keep doing the same thing. And uh, I would say sort of a silver lining of the pandemic has been that it sort of shook people out of their complacency where they started to say, you know, maybe I should have a professional take a look at this, like, and, and, and at least propose something else. And then I can, you know, give it the smell test. And then if I, if I feel like they made a lot of good points, maybe I'll make a change, right? And so sometimes we'll do marketing audits and media audits for companies and not become their agency. We'll just give them the to-do list and say, well, here's probably what, you, what your plan should look like. And then they can choose to do it themselves or have a different agency do it. And sometimes it becomes a, a biz dev, you know, uh, Trojan horse for us, right? Where it gets us in the door. Sure. And then they realize, wow, these guys sort of know what they're doing. Maybe, maybe we should hire them for, for an, an ongoing basis. Yeah, and what you're what you're highlighting here is really it's what great leaders always do is they always ask the tough questions, and when things seem to be going well, when things you know we have this this fantasy of certainty, and what what you're saying is whether whether things are certain or stable economically, politically, health wise, we should always be asking the question: What if we're wrong? What if what we're doing is wrong? Just ask the question. Yeah. And it's it's the, the idea of always having someone in the room. If all if everybody in the room agrees, you should have a policy that one person in the room has to disagree. <laughs> they have to in an executive team and the marketing team. What if we're wrong with the, the 2019 plan? Oh, it worked great. We grew this much. That's great. What if what if it doesn't work this year? What might we consider or what? contingency plans might we put in place with that question, even if we don't change too much, but let's open our minds up, be a little bit more creative. And what might we do if we were wrong and ask that question, put ourselves in the position where, what if, we, what if a pandemic happens? Oh, that'll never happen. It brings up my favorite quote by Voltaire. Uncertainty is uncomfortable, but certainty is absurd. <laughs> That's a great quote. So I, I, I definitely agree with you. The majority of people in these meetings are uncomfortable with uncertainty, right? And I think that's part of the reason that they they gravitate to what has been done before. Yeah, and and, and they just you know they don't change as as quickly as they should. And my and my messages from as a leader is embrace the discomfort because that's where the learning occurs. 
Embrace the discomfort, embrace the struggle. If things are going really, really well, that's when you should really, really worry. Because, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, life is about trends. Things go up and down all the time. And we don't, we don't have to like overreact, but we need to ask the question, what if? So, so Kevin, I always like to finish these podcasts with my final question. Before I do though, why don't you talk a little bit about givingforward.org? Because I looked at your website and talk a little about what that is and just give a little advertisement for it. Cause it's a really great, it's really great what you do with that. Sure. I'll give you the quick backstory to that. So I, I had had a platform called We Care previously, which was cause marketing powered e-commerce. I love taking marketing budgets and having them end up in the coffers of nonprofits. So we had this cause marketing powered e-commerce platform with about uh, 1500 merchants, including Amazon. And then uh, six years in, after we had generated $8 million for nonprofits, $8.3 million, Amazon asked us to prove that the conversion rate does, in fact, change when people's favorite nonprofit is selected to get a piece of the action and the shopping cart size increases. So we did an A-B split test. And we demonstrated the lift and could be coincidental, could be not coincidental. But three months later, they terminated our agreement. And uh, six months after that, they launched Amazon Smile. So that's generated, you know, an additional $140 million for nonprofits since they were inspired to go their own way with that. But what Giving Forward is, is really sort of the next generation of cause marketing platforms beyond just e-commerce. So it's cause marketing powered content, right? So imagine if Instagram could give away half of its ad revenue to nonprofits. That's our business model, right? We have content contributors, we have content consumers. Each of them get a vote. We take 25% of the ad revenue and allocate it to the reader's choice and the contributor's choice, mostly video. So it's not really a reader, it's a viewer. So we're, we're in launch mode. We've got some content co-creation partnerships. Uh, we'll be launching on goodbuzz.org as our first domain. Uh, and we have an events business as well. We wanted to democratize virtual fundraising events. Let the consumer who buys the ticket pick which nonprofit gets a piece of the ticket. Right. So we built sort of an Eventbrite clone that lets people, you know, lets the nonprofit send over the ticket buyer. And then that nonprofit that sent the ticket buyer over is the one that gets the majority of the money. So we're mm -hmm. all about trying to shunt revenue to nonprofits who could really use the money right now. Mm -hmm. This has been a very difficult last year uh, for 501c3s. And, and so I started giving forward as a 501c3. After failing to resuscitate uh, uh, We Care. I tried to buy some publishing assets. I tried to buy Gawker.com. If you Google me and Gawker and mm -hmm. look at the, the news tab, there's quite a story there. But I tried to buy four other publications unsuccessfully and then just decided to go out and start a nonprofit and start from a dead standstill. So it's like my hobby, right? So everybody yeah. has a hobby. I've got my business that takes 40, 50 hours a week. And then uh, giving forward gets, gets uh, the leftovers. The family gets a little, you know, and then I occasionally work out. But <laughs> there's not a lot of spare time in there. Well, I, I want to offline hear a little bit more about that because I've got some uh, events coming up and we might be able to connect into some of those things that as I think about this, I was going to do them for free, some uh, things for my clients. And I might do something that says, no, it's going to cost you a dollar. It's going to cost you $5 or $10. And you get to pick the charity that it'll go to. So yeah. uh, I, I think that's a great idea. I do, I, you know, full disclosure, I do connect in with smile.amazon.com because, you know, uh, I'm able to donate some money to the, to the veterans associations, the different veterans groups. 
So I, I'm glad that you started that and uh, that Amazon was inspired by you. I like that. And, you know, when people benefit, regardless of how it happens, that's really the, the bottom line that, that you started this and that people are benefiting from it. So that's great. So I want to ask you the last question that I always ask my guests. And the last question is, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back 20 to 25 years and say, hey, Kevin, you might want to dot, dot, dot. What would you tell Kevin? I would basically tell my earlier self that confidence is infectious, right? Uh, I probably grew more slowly, even though I have had a very successful career with you know, entrepreneurial startups and everything. I, w- I would say that, you know, allowing your confidence to b- exude more, that, that's infectious. And it's infectious for your internal team members. And it's infectious when you're in biz dev mode, right? And so if you have the confidence that you can, you can actually deliver and make somebody's life better, you know, whether in the for-profit or nonprofit context, like exude it, right? I mean, because yeah. it, it, it's completely infectious. And I probably... You know, I wouldn't have called myself an extrovert despite having spoken at over five or five or six hundred conferences, you know, but, you know, I think I could have probably glommed onto that earlier, like had that epiphany a little bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And and with that confidence, you're showing passion, right? And with passion, you engage people. So, yeah. And uh, just a, a quick aside, a lot of people actually that do public speaking and being a member of the National Speakers Association, I, I, I see this. A lot of them are introverts and they think carefully about what they're going to say and they practice and practice and practice where sometimes extroverts go out and say, oh, I can just wing this. And that never goes well. So, or seldom. <laughs> okay. So, Kevin, I, I want to thank you for being our guest today on Leading from the Front. It's been awesome hearing about your path, what you've done with your companies, and what you're doing for nonprofits today. And, and not just not just talking about leadership, but doing something about it and leading it and demonstrating and role modeling. And I really appreciate your your being here with us today. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit petercats.com.